Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, chief executive here and a proud member. Today's October 30th, and as we have since the pandemic hit Ohio, we are live once again from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. They're our public media partners, and we're deeply grateful for their partnership. It's October 30th, as I said, just four days away from Election Day. And with the presidential race at nearly a tie in Ohio, according to recent polls, Ohio appears to be living up to our reputation as a swing state. Ohio has a well-earned reputation there as a bellwether. Since 1896, Ohio has voted with the winner of the presidential contest 29 times, missing only twice with Thomas Dewey in 1944 and Richard Nixon in 1960. And since the birth of the Republican Party, no member of the GOP has ever won the White House without winning Ohio, and only two Democrats have done it, JFK and Grover Cleveland. So who are we, Ohioans? And what makes us so uniquely positioned to reflect the identity of our nation? Award-winning author and essayist David Giffels set out to answer that question and spent a year traveling 4,000 miles throughout the state. He obviously took the scenic route visiting people and places that offer valuable reflections of, national of the national questions and concerns. He chronicles his journey in a new book. It's called Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America. David Giffels has been dubbed the Bard of Akron by the New York Times. He spent about a quarter century writing about what it means to live in his native state. For 18 years, he covered Ohio as a newspaper journalist, much of that time with the Akron Beacon Journal. His six books all have Ohio themes and settings, and he teaches a course on Ohio literature at the University of Akron, where he's a professor of creative writing. He's won many awards, including the Cleveland Arts Prize for Literature, the Ohio Arts Council Individual Excellence Award, and a General Excellence Award from the National Society of Newspaper Columnists. He was selected as the Cuyahoga County Public Library Writer-in-Residence in 2018. We're going to begin with a short reading from David Giffels, followed by a conversation where he'll share stories from his journey and what he learned about the present and future of America from Ohioans. And then we'll turn, as we always do, to your questions. If you have a question for David Giffels, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. If you're on Twitter, tweet it at the City Club, and we will work your question in. David Giffels, welcome to the City Club. Thank you, Dan. It's it's great to be with you in Cleveland without actually having to drive to Cleveland. Oh, that feels like a little bit um, of some shade, but we will <laughs> ignore it and let you read from your book. Would you kick us off with a little bit of uh, a little bit of prose? I will. Thanks. Um, this is from uh, very early in the first chapter. I can't say that I was worried that morning in the way I might identify now. Like most people, I was occupied by the immediate concerns of the day, my classes to teach, an eye doctor's appointment, my expiring license plates. But I was worried, the way most people are, for my children, my son, who was beginning the police academy that day. 
the daughter leaving for class at the downtown university, still fretting over her path, asking me and my wife for an answer that we wished we had. What is my life going to be? I was worried the way most people are about the slim black smartphone at my side, the way it distracts and narrows my focus, the drag of social media and the ways we no longer listen and the ways we no longer speak. I was worried the way most people were in 2019 about the chaos, division and acrimony surrounding the presidency of Donald Trump. I was feeling that morning, like most people, the troubling misalignment of my country. And I was wondering about Ohio, a topic I wonder about perhaps more than any other. What I knew that morning and was beginning to consider in a newly urgent way is that I live in a very particular America, the America of Ohio, which has forever served uniquely as a reflection of the nation, a conscience of sorts. Even in a time when that reflection felt more like one from a funhouse mirror, I believed that in the far reaches of my territory, on farms and in little towns, in factories and in kitchens, there would be an answer to what that misalignment meant. So that's what I set off to find. The Ohio I was about to explore is such a remark remarkably reliable gauge of Americana that bellwether is our default political cliche and test marketers beat a perennial path to our food courts. Pulitzer Prize winning native son Louis Bromfield observed nearly a century ago in verbiage few other self-respecting Midwesterners would use, Ohio is the apotheosis of Americanism. Geographically and culturally, the state is an all-American buffet, an uncannily complete every place. Cleveland is the end of the North. Cincinnati is the beginning of the South. Youngstown is the end of the East. And Hicksville, yes, Hicksville, is the beginning of the Midwest. Across 88 counties, Ohio mashes up broad regions of farmland, major industrial centers, small towns, the third largest university in the country, the second largest Amish population, and a bedraggled vein of Appalachia. It is coastal, it is rural, it is urban and suburban, mainly because of the industrial age migration of Europeans, white Appalachians, and black Southerners to the cities for factory jobs Ohio developed a rich cultural and political melting pot. The state's four distinct seasons, each intense unto itself, unfold like courier and Ives without the soft edges. It is the birthplace of professional football, rock and roll, the airplane, and chewing gum. As my friend Seth Borgen, author of a book called If I Die in Ohio, said over beers one night, Ohio has a little of everything and an abundance of nothing. Our uncanny knack for choosing the American president, therefore, should come as no surprise. 
Since 1896, Ohio's voters have sided with the winner in 29 of 31 presidential elections. No state has a higher percentage of accuracy. No Republican has ever won the presidency without winning Ohio. We are the only state to have a perfect record choosing the victor since 1964. In a 2015 interview with Cincinnati public radio station WVXU, Eric Ostermeyer, a research associate at the University of Minnesota, remarked on Ohio's electoral clairvoyance. The electorate in Ohio is willing to flip back and forth, he said. They have done that plenty of times. But the vote in Ohio always mimics the national vote. It's extraordinary. That's the voice of David Giffels. He's the author of Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America. He is our speaker today at our City Club Friday Forum. If you'd like to join the conversation later on with a question of your own or uh, or a comment, uh, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can tweet your question at the City Club, and we'll work them into the program. David Giffels, uh, thank you for that reading. Why did you write this book? I was, it's kind of funny, actually. I'll give you a quick backstory. I was, um, you mentioned in the, in the introduction that um, the New York Times, in, in its review of my previous book, referred to me as, as, as the Bard of Akron, um, a phrase that uh, makes me very self-conscious and even cringe a little bit. Not that I'm not proud of having written a lot about my hometown. It's my favorite subject and a lot about Ohio, but I felt like maybe I was being pigeonholed and it was time to kind of move um, beyond uh, at least those borders. And so I was um, casting about for a new idea and the 2018 midterm elections happened and I was talking with my agent and he said, you know, David, it just seems like Ohio just always finds itself at the center of this conversation, the conversation of, of what happens in election cycles. And, and he's a New Yorker, but he was aware of, of Ohio having a sort of a, a kind of presence in the national conversation. And so he said, why don't you do a book, an Ohio book, um, sort of looking toward the 2020 election. And so, you know, the person who thought he was going to step away from the Ohio topic now has written a book. The, the largest word on the cover of the book is the word Ohio. So yeah, like, uh, but, but as soon as he, as soon as I sort of engaged with that idea, I, did, I, I, I realized that we are, we do have something to say and something to tell. And those of us who've lived here a long time know that three years out of every four most of the country either ignores us or, or leans on very flimsy stereotypes about us. And, and then in the fourth year, everybody kind of comes here looking for like trying to poke us and see what, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, like looking for that answer. And, and very often my experience has been that, that our narrative gets, gets told to us from, from outside sources who have tried to do a quick study. And I thought, what I want to do with this book is, is go to the very heart of that question, what does Ohio have to say about the nation, um, and tell it very much from within in authentic voices that were allowed to speak for themselves. How did you decide where to go and who to speak to? Um, part of it was directed by uh, a notion that political scientists and journalists have used for a long time of the five Ohios, which very briefly, Ohio breaks down into five distinct regions, the Northeast, 
uh, the Southwest, the Southeast, the Northwest, and Central Ohio. And each of those regions votes uniquely in a, a different way from the others. We have sort of like almost like five states within one. And it's not like there's a blend that says this is Ohio represents an average, but rather those each of those five pieces could be extrapolated onto another part of the country to show how that part of the country is going to vote. So, and it's unusual in that way. No other state kind of breaks down that way. So I knew I wanted to visit each of those regions. Um, and then within that, I knew that there were important national themes that were take, that are taking place now that I wanted to find Ohio as a reflection of that national story so that we could maybe, I could find um, individuals and places that would help us, help cast light onto what was happening nationally, especially with some very complex issues that maybe we could shed light on. Could you um, just unpack yeah. that a little bit though, The that the, um, the, the state is five states in one, and so mm. Central Ohio, and and you said that they that each of these regions sort of represents or could be a proxy almost for another part of the country. So so unpack that a little bit. Where does sure. uh, how does Northeast Ohio votes in a way that mimics w- which part of the country, and Central Ohio mimics which other part of the country? Yeah. So so Northeast Ohio, um, obviously, as we know who live here is. Um, post-industrial, uh, it's, it's, it's very blue. It has a lot of um, old union influence on democratic politics. Um, and it tends to more mimic the, the northeast of the country. Uh, uh, southeast Ohio, the Appalachian region, um, is overwhelmingly white, um, high poverty, less populous, uh, has suffered through hard times economically and also with the opioid crisis. And not to be reductive, but it also kind of represents what's what's become called Trump country, um, a, a large, strong um, support for Donald Trump in 2016 emerged from that region. Uh, Southwest Ohio, uh, primarily centered around Cincinnati, tends to be more conservative, feels more like the American South and less like the American East or the American North. Um, and it really is the true beginning of the American South in a lot of ways. It was the, the Ohio River to Cincinnati was the crossing over point of the Underground Railroad. And in fact, the Ohio River was referred to as the River Jordan. So it's, it's kind of represents spiritually and also sort of um, demographically what the South is more like. Uh, Northwest Ohio, much more rural, um, dominated by a farm economy. Um, feels more like and is more like the true American Midwest. And then Central Ohio, um, obviously dominated by Columbus, is more of a white collar, more urban, more, it's the only growing big city in Ohio. Um, and, and so it kind of, it represents a, a different version of the American experience than those other regions do. And so again, and, and also within each of those regions, there's also tends to be a sort of a self-centered media um, and this is becoming less true as, as media becomes more diffuse, but even so, the, each has its own TV market, and up until recently, each had its own sort of central major newspaper or, news, or a couple of major newspapers that, that were, you know, like sort of the information centers. And you take all of that together, and, it, and you can see where those lines are. Can you take us to Cincinnati uh, for a moment? It, it plays a, a unique role in the, in the whole book. Sure. Yeah, I went to Cincinnati um, because I wanted to write about race in America. 
And Cincinnati is one of the most racially complex cities in America. It's one of the most segregated cities. Um, it has uh, a, a difficult sort of um, a lot of open wounds and a difficult racial history. Um, it has a long history of gentrification going into air, urban areas that are primarily African-American and pushing those populations out to restore the beautiful historic architecture, but also pushes those communities around to to continue to evolve as a city. And so it has a lot of difficult um, uh, questions and a lot of difficult um, sort of anecdotes, backstories. And so one of the stories I wanted to tell that, that um, took on a life of its own in, in the time since I visited was uh, the story of Timothy Thomas, a young 19-year-old uh, African-American man who uh, was walking in the, over the Rhine neighborhood late at night. Um, the police began to pursue him. They knew who he was, and he was wanted on some outstanding warrants, mostly for traffic violations. They started to chase him. He started to run. Um, a young white police officer pursued him into an alleyway. Timothy Thomas's droopy pants started to fall. He reached for the waistband. The cop thought he was reaching for a gun and the cop opened fire and shot him and he died. And not long after, the police officer was acquitted on, on the charges related to the shooting. So um, as a lot of people remember, this is 2001, almost 20 years ago, uh, rioting erupted and it played out very much like these kinds of shootings have played out in, in the two decades since. And obviously in the past year um, with, with a new kind of prominence. Um, I didn't know that was gonna happen at the time I wrote about it, but I knew that was part of the story. The reason I wanted to write about that was not only to, um, to reflect a part of what the American experience is right now, but also because I knew that Cincinnati responded to it in a different way than other places have done so. And the response was not just let's um, quiet this down and bring calm back, but what can we do to be proactive um, to understand how to either make this not happen again or to know what to do if it does. And they put together a complex uh, set of uh, community um, stockholders, uh, police, uh, city officials, social service agencies, education people, and p many people from the community. And they developed something called the Collaborative Agreement, which is a detailed plan sort of revamping um, relations between the police and the community. And that's been in place ever since. And those officials have been called on in Ferguson and other places to come and bring that collaborative plan to their cities in the wake of these, this kind of turmoil. And so Cincinnati, um, like in terms of Ohio as a bellwether, there's an example of, of us being a bellwether in the sense of um, having been through something before and being a place that, that the rest of the country can turn to for answers or guidance, you know, so we're not like sort of de facto leaders of the nation, but we do have um, a range of, of experiences that others can look to to understand themselves. You also write it's in that chapter about the Cincinnati's history and uh, on the, in the Underground Railroad 
and as being the the place where Margaret Garner crossed the Ohio River. Um, her story, somewhat famously now, and and fairly famous at the time, um, but famously now because it was the inspiration for the novel Beloved by Toni Morrison, also a, a daughter of Ohio. Yeah, and you and I were talking before we went on the air, and we both agree that it's, it, it's if not if not the great American novel, certainly one of the great American novels. No, it's the best. Um, I, I won't disagree. I, I really won't. It's I, on every level, artistically, and, and what it says, its relevance um, to every aspect of us. And, and as a matter of fact, the week that I went to Cincinnati was the week that Toni Morrison died. So she was, I was already going there with a question about um, her insight, but then kind of more urgently, kind of in the light of her loss, I really wanted to understand um, her version of Cincinnati better. And one thing I was interested in is the, uh, the family of Margaret Garner crossed the Ohio River from Kentucky. And there's a historical marker on the Kentucky side where they, where they departed, but there's no specific place on the Ohio side where they arrived. And I, I just wanted to know where that was. And I, I, um, I went to the National Underground Railroad, which is which is nestled between the Cincinnati Reds Stadium and the Cincinnati Bengals Stadium in this um, revamped part of downtown Cincinnati, a really beautiful setting. And, the, uh, and uh, the, the director of research there told me that he has figured out that kind of like right where that, the Underground Railroad Museum and uh, Research Center is, is the spot where they arrived. And I think it's important, not just a matter of like literary curiosity, like where the real Margaret Garner and where the fictional character based on her crossed over, but also um, I think it's an important thing for us to understand that it's not so simple that if you go from point A to point B across a river that divides the north from the south, that somehow you're free. And um, and the the experts at the at the Underground Railroad uh, museum pointed out to me that the museum was di- designed to reflect that complexity of crossing over. It's 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 a rough and uneven building. It has. Uh, metal plates on steel plates on the side that have been allowed to rust and kind of bleed down into the concrete. It's got um, entry points that are sort of like uh, passages through the building that are not straight lines. You cross through and you fall into shadows and it and it feels if you walk through you can see what it would feel like to escape and hide in shadows and try to move forward and it and it doesn't end. So there's a sense of and as one of the important themes of Beloved is nobody, anyone who stops is in danger. No, no, the story of race is never over in America, and, and, and it would be um, dangerous for us to think that, it, that we've resolved something, but, and it's fruitful to think that we need to continue to understand it. Um, and Cincinnati tells that story in its geography and in its, and in its you know, demographics in, in so many important ways. If you're just joining us, our, our guest for the Friday Forum today uh, at your city club is David Giffels. He's the author of Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America. He's also the author of a few other books. His most recent book prior to this was about building his own coffin, uh, a topic for another day. Um, but, David, I want to I move 
diagonally across the state. There's you cover the entire state. You you really did. Um, but I want to ask you to talk a little bit about the Mahoning Valley. There is um, there is something very of the moment in the history of the Mahoning Valley, and I know that's sort of um, a, a strange sort of paradoxical way to put it. But I think your your book and the chapters in which you dis- in which you speak about or write about rather Jim both Jim Trafficant and Tim Ryan kind of encapsulate a lot of that. Yeah, I, I actually spent more time in the Mahoning Valley than any other part of the state, in, in part because just my, the book covers one year from March 2019 to March 2020. And just as I was entering this project, uh, the Lordstown plant, GM plant, um, the last Chevy Cruze went down the production line, like the very week I was beginning my work. And so I went straight to Lordstown to, as my starting point and returned there a number of times. Um, and then uh, a very, very short time after that, uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, who must have gotten wind that I was writing a book about Ohio in a, in a political season. Um, so he threw his hat into the ring for me to, to run for the Democratic nomination. So I'd have another thing to write about. Um, Perfect. And so I started covering his campaign. Yeah. And it was great because I, the, the rally that opened his campaign in, in downtown Youngstown had sort of this, to me, like this feel that really got to the heart of this book. It's a national campaign that he's announcing. It's a national, it's national news, but it felt almost like, uh, like he was running for city council. Like it, it felt small town, hometown in it, in an authentic way. And, and he, as a child of a steel worker who knows what the history of job loss in Lordstown is, down to his DNA, you know, was kind of speaking at a moment um, when sort of the divide between the working people and the people of greater and greater means is, is um, you know, kind of at the centerpiece of a lot of what we're talking about. Um, the, how, the does, story... how does a, a place like the Mahoning Valley produce congressmen in the same district so completely different as Jim Trafficant, who uh, faced corruption charges multiple times in his illustrious career, and Tim Ryan, a practitioner of um, mindfulness and meditation. <laughs> um, you know, o- Ohio has a little of everything and an abundance of nothing, as my friend <laughs> what, what, what is the slogan? Find it here? <laughs> <laughs> um but you know Tim Tim Ryan began his career as an aide to Jim Trafficant, and Tim Ryan has had some really valuable insight into Trafficant. Trafficant is, for those who don't know, um, I can't put him in a nutshell because he's just too rich of a character. But uh, Tim Ryan, I, I'm sorry, uh, Jim Trafficant was this um, outsider, populist. He was a Democrat, but um, a, a bombastic sort of media baiting. Uh, populist who knew how to to stir up his people. Um, he had a fantastically uh, discombobulated bouffant hairstyle that was kind of his like first calling card, and he's been referred to for those reasons as the proto-Trump. He 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 was a political figure in the same way that Donald Trump became a political figure. Um, and 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 he was ultimately corrupt. He and yet when he 
uh, was finally convicted and, and, and kicked out of Congress and went to prison, he ran again for his seat, the seat he had been basically disbarred from, and he got like close to 20% of the vote. I mean, he remained incredibly popular. Um, he and Tim Ryan are very, very different. Tim Ryan is um, a more traditional politician, but also um, they have and and has had great staying power. But he and Jim Traffigan under the surface had something uh, very much in common, which is they truly understood the people they came from. And in Tim's case, continues to understand. And they could speak in an authentic voice to them that might not even be measurable to outside listeners. Like they understand, um, you know, one thing about most of the regions of Ohio and certainly that region, certainly where I live in Akron, is that we've been bleeding population. We've, we've been, you know, victims of brain drain for multiple generations. And so those who have remained, for the most part, have remained for a reason. And those reasons are sort of true to family, true to roots, true to um, a sense of place. And so we have a very finely tuned language and a very finely tuned civic understanding of one another that Tim Ryan speaks to because he comes from it too. You, the, the thesis of that chapter seems to be, or those, those chapters in which you are writing about the valley, the Mahoning Valley, seems to be really that um, uh, these are the sorts of things that will happen when people feel as if they're not being listened to. Yes. And the, the Lordstown story, the closure of the, of the GM plant there, and we say the word Lordstown as if there's a, a city of Lordstown, and it's really, it's just the plant. Um, well, there's a village, but there's it's, a village. Yeah, but it's yeah, but it's, it's really but it's dwarfed by the plant. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit of a ghost town now. The um, w- the closure of that plant, it's hard to overstate the impact of the closure of that plant. It's hard to overstate it. Not only not only in the immediate sense that the because it not only represented uh, the loss of a lot of jobs, it also represented the loss of um what what may be the loss of the end of what those really good union jobs that were provided by the big corporate overlords of northeast ohio um the tire companies in my city the steel companies in your city um and and gm in the mahoning valley um the new any new jobs that come to replace those are not going to be those 30 dollar an hour you know putting your life at the factory and retire um, you know on, on firm standing kinds of jobs but much more than that that factory closing echoes straight back to Black Monday the day in 1977 when Youngstown shoot and sheet and tube closed its plant um, it, you know this this almost atomic blast of an economic explosion that that changed life in the Mahoning Valley to to this day. And so anything that happens that resembles that makes people shudder. Um, people know what it means there. And again, in great part because this is a populace that has a lived experience, a shared experience that um, that that they understand 
what happened a generation before because those generations have told that story. Some of the most heartbreaking moments in your book are the the conversations you describe or even just the text messages you get, you describe receiving from people who had worked at the GM plant who were waiting to hear if where they were going to be offered a new position with GM and were having to uproot themselves. And I think that the news coverage didn't begin to communicate to the rest of Ohio what a truly emotionally difficult experience that was. These weren't the losses of jobs. I mean, that's, that's only the very beginning of it. There's a woman named Nanette Centers who I got to know who um, she's in her mid-50s, her family's all in, in the area around Lordstown. Her aging mother needed her care. Her, um, you know, everything was there. And when that job went away, at the age that she was at, she was concerned for good reasons that she might not be you know, very employable. And her only option would be to, if she was lucky in a way, um, to accept an assignment at another plant, at another GM plant, more than likely somewhere very far away from home. And in fact, when we went in our last correspondence, she was making the, these final um, steps toward making that decision. Her first grandchild had just been born right nearby, and she's going to have to move away from that. Her aging mother still needs her help. She's going to have to move away from her. She has aging pets that she's going to have to euthanize because she knows they can't make that move. It would be more stressful for them. I mean, just the devastation that underlies those numbers is, you're right, it's underrepresented in the news stories, which often focus on the economy or these big forces of a president sniping with, with a corporate CEO and these and, and or, or in this case, sniping with the union president and the union president. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he, he, he tweeted out an insult at David Green, the guy who's just trying, you know, he's, he had just gotten elected president of the local and suddenly finds himself, you know, on the national news and doing his best to try to fight. And, and he gets this, you know, just this week's swat from the president on, on a tweet. And, you know, I asked him, this had just happened when I sat down with him. And I said, what does it feel like to be in a, in a Twitter storm with Donald Trump? And he goes, I don't know. I don't even have a Twitter account. You know, I mean, he's just like a regular guy. And he's, you know, and, but, you know, but he's like, you know, you do that. And I don't have any way to fight that back against that. And he's like, I've got, I've got way other things, bigger things to, to worry about. And we don't see that side of, of that th thing with, that we're fascinated by. You know, those great big sort of like the wars of the gods that are taking place overhead. Well, here are the wars of the foot soldiers, the invisible anonymous foot soldiers. In, uh, you know, Lordstown multiplies itself across the country. You could find a version of that in, in any place you go. And, you know, the whole, my whole, the whole spirit of my journey and what I found more than anything else was that feeling of not being listened to and that feeling of anyone who does come to hear what I have to say wants something for themselves. 
David Giffels is our guest at our at the City Club Friday Forum today. If you have a question for him, please text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. The uh, We're going to get to those questions in a second, but just to close out the conversation about Youngstown right now, the president repeatedly promised to bring those jobs back, told the, as you, as you report in your book, told people, don't sell your homes, stay, we're going to bring these jobs back, and had, had said the same to coal miners in Appalachia and, and the same to, to others in various industries. Do those voters, how do those voters feel about the president and those promises? Yeah, so I'm not a pollster and I'm not a political scientist. So this is very much like the the whole spirit of this book is I wanted individuals to be allowed to speak for themselves and not be turned into political types or you know fit into a demographic pigeonhole. That said, the people that I talked to, because one of the one of the trends that people are looking at Ohio um, to try to understand is that the large number of traditional union Democrats who had voted twice for Barack Obama voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And it happened in Trumbull County, it happened in Mahoney County, those numbers are um, very unusual. 201, every person I spoke to who fits that profile, who had voted for Obama twice, voted for Trump, and now had felt, felt burned by what had happened, told me they would not vote for Donald Trump again some of them in very bitter terms. So, I mean, that's one thing that I'll be watching for when I start to watch, you know, John King with his magic board on CNN, you know, sort of break down where each vote goes by county. But I'm sorry, I'll be I'll be watching PBS and listening to NPR. Well, Dan, you're a good uh, citizen of of the nonprofit. I'm I'm paid to say that. Um, (laughs) David Gibbles, let's bring in questions from our audience. and since we're talking about the importance of individuals and their stories and their contributions, it's fitting that we start with a question from Michael Patterson, who works for uh, immigration attorney Margaret Wong, and in the before times came to every single forum and often asked a question about immigration. And he writes to us, in your travels throughout Ohio, was immigration one of the topics discussed? And if so, what do you think the consensus was? Um, so it's not one of the main themes that I pursued uh, and so I don't have particular insight there. Um, and I may disappoint the listener by be saying this, but one of the reasons it's not one of the points that I pursued is because it didn't seem to be as much on the minds of Ohioans at the time I was beginning my research as, as other themes did. Um, that's not to say that it is not important or wasn't important then, but it's not something that I di- did enough interviewing or research on to say anything smart about here. But importantly, it didn't come up organically in conversations as people talked about what was most important to them. That's true. Yeah, it didn't. That's very interesting. Um, Here's a question that, again, you may not have the answer to, but that is not going to stop us from asking it because it wouldn't stop the questioner from asking it at the City Club. Why does Ohio have so many right-wing extremist groups? And what does that mean as a reflection of the country now and in the future? I, I, I can't, I, I can only give an answer from my perspective, but I heard a lot of frustration um, from all sides when I was traveling. Uh, frustration, again, t- 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 of not being heard or of, of not being attended to. 
And, you know, that's what drives extremism is a, is a feeling of voicelessness, a feeling of um, nobody's doing for me what needs to be done. So, uh, I mean, I, I could say that you could probably follow that trail to its extreme and, and find that that's part of what those right wing groups do. I mean, if you look at the effect when when they do get validated by the president of the United States, they they're energized because they've been noticed and, you know, there's names been spoken in a national forum. Um, so I, I think that could be part of it. I think part of it, too, I wonder, I mean, when after you did your year of reporting and your year of travels, when the lockdown and then you immediately like stopped reporting and started writing, which was a convenient time because it was March 2020 and we all stopped doing everything we had been right. doing and we're kind of locked down. When you saw the responses to the lockdown, the 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 vehement, um, the the vehement and very visible small minority of people who were protesting, did you recognize it? I, I well, here's what I recognized is. I knew, you know, like most people know, like how how divided we are, um, and it's a lot of it's artificial. A lot of it's it's um, if you know because we choose the information we get, and because we choose the way we interact on social media, and so we're divided by things that if you took those away, those walls would fall very easily. I think because one of my takeaways from this, and I do believe this, is that we remain more alike than different. But what those images did is they gave uh, sort of they gave power to that sense of division. Like, so if I'm in agreement with, with what those protesters say, but I'm not nearly as extreme, it still creates this I, I'm on that side of it and not on this side of it. Or it diminishes the sense of there being a large middle. And I think there is a large middle. I think the silent majority right now is 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 the center. Very interesting. Another question for you, David Giffels. Great reading, great talk from our listener. Given the polls and trends about Ohio leaving behind its historically purple status and turning red, do you think Ohio will get it wrong this year? It, it, I wonder. You know, it's it's really interesting. I looked this morning, and the uh, the five thirty eight aggregate of the polls, which uh, we take it for what it's worth, it was the diff Trump was ahead by 0.1%. So what that tells me is it's, it's, it's less which way Ohio is going to go. And it's more if Ohio is truly the bellwether of a nation that we know is divided, what better portrait of a nation divided than of an Ohio that's exactly divided down the middle on this presidential race, regardless of the outcome. Do I think, I mean, I, I think there is, statistically, there's there's a decent chance that this will be a case where the nation will vote, the national vote will go for Joe Biden and Ohio's vote will go for Donald Trump. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to say that in a prognosticating way. I'm going to say that in a way that it threatens to kill the statistics that are set this book is set up on so <laughs> that's a selfish part of the response i suppose so but the the i mean the thing about ohio and the thing that you know when you and i hear national pundits talk about ohio they seem to miss the nuances of 
in the last statewide election in 2018, Ohio resoundingly elected both Republican Governor Mike DeWine and Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown. And I think most people who were thinking about were kind of who were politically astute and polls would have suggested like this was how it was going to happen. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a surprise to any Ohioans, really. I mean, most Ohioans, I think perhaps Rich Cordray, who was running against Mike DeWine, would disagree. But but I, I mean, how do you see it? Um, I was doing a national interview, I think the week before last, but um, but this interviewer said, well, said, well, so Ohio is a purple state. I said, no, Ohio is not a purple state. Um, Ohio is a a red, blue, red, blue, red, blue, red, blue, red, blue, red, blue state. It's, you know, it's it's I think it's a mistake to just again to look at that poll number and say, well, Ohio is like sort of a complete blend. Um, it's it, you're right. It's a nuanced place where uh, you can go to one part of Ohio and understand a part of America, and you can go to another part of Ohio and understand another part of America, and all of those people would self-identify as Ohioans. So, well, and there's a um, bunch of voters in that race who voted for both the Democrat Sherrod Brown and the Republican Mike DeWine, who actually ran against each other years ago. And I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if for many voters it was like, oh, it's a dream come true. I can vote for both of these guys. Yeah. yeah. And and they are very different politicians. They have very different policies, very different viewpoints. Um, and, and yet they're Ohio. That's Ohio. There is talk that if Joe Biden's elected, that John Kasich might be in his cabinet. So, you know, like, you know, that sort of John Kasich, who won the 2016 primary in Ohio. Right. And it was yeah. the it was the only state that John Kasich won. Yeah. Wow. Um, so here's another question uh, from somebody who definitely doesn't know you. I moved to Dayton for my first job and retired in 20, 2019 and am staying. When you retire, will you stay? If not, what are you leaving for? I'm on Chapter 13 of your book, by the way. Uh, well, thank you for for reading. Uh, yeah, I um, yeah, once <laughs> once the New York Times calls you the bard of Akron, you kind of <laughs> like, I guess I'll put down those roots now. I, you know, like you got to take it where you can get it. Yeah, uh, that's a very important question to me because much of the writing I've done over my career has been about the tension of whether to leave or stay in a place that is not the easiest place to commit to in, in some ways, when, or, or that there are obviously other places that seem easier to commit to. And, and so, you know, there are many reasons that I will stay here. It's, it's my true home. It's, it's, it's my identity. Um, I think one of the, um, I, I think one of the less uh, understood allures of, especially for natives, of sticking out in Ohio is this feeling of having endured hard times, shared hard times together, and the bond that comes from having gotten through them. And in fact, in the pandemic era, I guess we can call it an era now, once six months passes, it counts as an era, right? Um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is that Ohio is about whether, as I said before, in part, I define that as a place that people look to for answers. And so the pandemic caused massive job loss. It represents a, a, a global health emergency. Um, 
you know, all of these things. Well, if you want to understand massive job loss, come to the Rust Belt because we've been through it for two generations. We, we have lessons to learn, lessons to teach from what we've learned. If you want to understand how to handle a global health crisis, come to a place that's been dealing with the opioid epidemic. Um, at, at the forefront of it, which is one reason that I think Ohio Governor DeWine and Amy Acton, the public health director, were, were so nimble at first is because they had already been acting, um, you know, against a, a very similar dynamic and they knew how to bring together um, various social service agencies and, and use medical expertise and so forth to react to a problem like that. You know, I, I had I had joked that the questioner probably doesn't know you because um, because it, it asking if you might leave is I mean it's just it's sort of it's like asking the Pope if he's going to leave the Catholic Church. Um, it's just like it's really hard to so imagine you I'm leaving Pope Akron. Of Akron. <laughs> that's right. That's uh, right. You can I'll be take, both. The, yeah. yeah, you can put that on the on the dust jacket of the next book, the Pope, um, the Pope of Akron. Um, David Giffels, we have talked about only two places, really, the Mahoning Valley and Cincinnati. We haven't talked about Mansfield with its carousel with two R's or Hilliard um, or uh, the Rolling Acres Mall or Middletown or Dayton or Delaware and the and the farmers that you spoke to and the farmers who wouldn't let you come because it was the only sunny day that they had to plant. Um, but... I, could you pick another place from the from your travels that you think is really important for us to understand and tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Yeah. And and actually, Mansfield is is a place that um, that really opened my eyes in certain ways. Uh, you know, Mansfield is sort of the quintessential small town, Rust Belt small town, a place that has struggled as much as any place has. Um, retains its, its small town Ohio-ness, American-ness, um, and, but also retains its struggle. And so I went there and one of the people I wanted to visit with was Leyland Fowler, who uh, was, is the manager of uh, the, a little downtown independent bookstore called Main Street Books. And I went and spent an afternoon talking with her and she told me her story. She, she moved away as many young people do and she lived in the places that attract people away from Ohio. She lived in Boston, Washington DC and New York City and as she was approaching the age of 30 she decided she wanted to return to her hometown. She came back to Mansfield um, and she was recruited, uh, enlisted to manage this little independent bookstore. She got uh, the shape of the Ohio flag tattooed on her wrist. She was like back and true blue um, committed to Mansfield. And the story she told me, um, and it's an urgent story, she said, you know, it, it was easy to exist in those other places I went. It's much harder to exist here in Mansfield. But she said, when I wake up in the morning in my downtown Mansfield apartment, I come down the stairs and I walk through the middle of downtown to the bookshop. And she said, it feels like I'm on Sesame Street. The other shopkeepers are there sort of waving, hi, Leyland, hello, Leyland, you know, it's friendly. And she said, this is the America that people want to believe still exists. This is what people want to believe America is because we're losing, as we become more homogenized and as we become, as our town squares become more like one of these that we're on right now and less a true town square as we interact less at shopping malls, 
because we're using online uh, commerce. She said, we're losing that sense. And, 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 but look how hard it is for me to exist. She's not making a living wage. And you know, Mansfield is barely struggling and nobody else would recognize this as the truth of America. Um, and, but she said, it's important to make decisions in your life that aren't necessarily easy in order to maintain an ideal that we believe is America. Otherwise, we'll lose a sense of our, our national identity. And she said it in more eloquent terms than I'm putting here, but she really like hit to my heart. Well, I had been telling that story as, when the book came out and I was doing the early round of interviews and so forth. And in the middle of September, uh, like just a few weeks after the book came out, I got an email from Leyland Fowler, um, heartbroken, letting me know that Main Street Books is closing. No. Yeah, that this bookshop that he had become my example of like how, you know, like what we can still be is it's a canary in a coal mine situation. She, you know, she's a warning sign. We we do. It's so easy to exist anymore without thinking about not only how we spend our dollars, but who we support in political races and. And just how we operate as citizens, and not—it's easy to not think about it. And even with her as a cautionary tale, her reminder is still there. We have to be mindful of who we are as Americans, even in our smallest transactions, or we can lose a lot—a lot more than a little bookstore in Mansfield, Ohio. That I assume that that's a that that is a casualty of COVID. Of this pandemic and and the and the economic turbulence it has wrought, um, I I I can't answer that. I can tell you that that bookshop was never making money, um, but as she told me when I spoke with her, she said the the reason the owner maintained it, kept it open, was because quote he believes that a downtown needs a bookstore, and so he was even you know like you know like supporting that same ideal, but. Yeah, I think at some point in the in the the economic stress of COVID is forcing a lot of those decisions. David Giffel's uh, this book um, is called "Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America," and um, and it's you know obviously available at um, independent booksellers and maybe Main Street Books in their liquidation has been able to is still selling some things online or or something like that, but. Can I make a quick uh, plug for not just for Maxbacks, but for this for the for what we're doing right now? Um, this began. Brews and Prose has had the shutdown, the great Cleveland literary reading series, mm-hmm. and I was talking with Lydia Manel and who runs the series. And I'm like, is there a way we could do a program, you know, to help Brews and Prose and also to help my book? And so we talked with Suzanne at Maxbacks, and we're like, yeah, let's do something together. And, and then it was like, hey, why don't we call, like, check with the City Club? And so it was this very Cleveland, very Ohio thing where just, like, people who knew each other were like, we could do something, and, and here we are now. I so, know a guy. I know a so, friend with a barn. Yeah, exactly. So Max Bax is selling uh, sign, b- books with signed book plates, and I know they're offering a, a 20% discount to City Club members, but 
All uh, support, factually correct, David. Support your local bookshop. David Giffels is the author of more than just Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America. He also has a great book about building a coffin and a great book about building a house. Um, and our forum is, as he's noted, presented in collaboration with Brews and Pros. David, it's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time for us. It's been great, as always, to talk with you too, Dan. Thanks also to our members, sponsors, donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more and join them at cityclub.org slash thank you. Next week, we bring back a couple of City Club favorites, Claire Malone of 538 and Dr. Jeremy Suri of the University of Texas at Austin to talk about Election Day and any outcomes we know about at that point. Also, please check out our new video series, Democracy Unchained. You can find out more about it at democracyunchained.io. Tom Steyer was on the, the episode that we just dropped. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong and stay healthy. Please wash your hands and thank you for voting. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.